We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. What was 1-6 like for you? What happened for, to you that day? When I saw the noose hanging up there, it was really strange for me uh, because I just worked with Lee Daniels on the United States versus Billie Holiday, where she was singing, you know, Strange Fruit based on the lynchings that she had seen. And then I also thought about, I just read the, the book, The Devil You Know, uh, and that the lynchings that he talked about, the 5,000 or so lynchings before the Civil War. And I'm thinking and looking at that noose and looking at them, I said, well, they say that that's supposed to be for Pence, that they're going to hang him. But I wonder, I wonder, first of all, if they're going to hang a white man. And secondly, I wonder how many of us they would hang if we if we showed up and got in the way. I just thought that, yeah, certainly I would have been killed. Maxine Waters has been an incredibly important congressperson for a very long time. I could not wait to talk to her about raising the minimum wage, getting COVID relief out to people, and just how she is able to find success as a congressperson. Couldn't wait to do this conversation. It's Congresswoman Maxine Waters on Touré Show. One of the things that people have been talking about since the beginning of this is what are we going to do for renters? How are people who are renters going to survive when a lot of them are not able to work or they're working at far lesser wages? And a lot of homeowners have been helped. We were able to pause our mortgage for three to six months or more last year. And now you're trying to get something done for renters. What have you been able to do? And how did you do it? Did you have, because I know there's horse training that goes on. Did you have to give away certain things to get the protection for renters? Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for asking the question because uh, rental assistance has been a priority of mine. And I started out when we first had the CARES Act and we were not able to get it in. And then when we uh, had the HEROES Act, I was able to get uh, my uh, idea of what we should be doing into that bill. And as the final bill has come out, uh, we have $21 billion for rental assistance. Now, it has been frustrating uh, because, as you know, there were a lot of rental moratoriums that were being put on and small landlords were having a fit uh, because they didn't have the money uh, to do repairs and upkeep. Some of them, of course, still have mortgages on that property that they had to pay. And so I agreed with the small landlords uh, that I thought that the extension of the rental moratoriums was being very hurtful and harmful to them, except we didn't have anything in place to replace it. And getting this 21 billion now in place has been, you know, pretty difficult. Uh, we have a lot of support 
uh, from people who know that we need to give rental assistance, uh, but we were not able to really figure out how to get that money into the hands of the renters and how to get that money into the hands of the landlords. And so we know now we've got the money. The bill is going to pass. The 21 billion is in that. It's going to be run I believe through the Treasury Department, but they have to now go to the states and the states agencies, housing agencies, whatever those agents are with the state are going to have to get this money out, you know, to the renters and to the landlords. And so the process is is stressful uh, for me because I wanted to do this a lot faster. I know that there are people who have not been able to pay their rent since last March. Uh, for example. Uh, but yes, it's going to be taken care of, but it's not fast enough. And the uh, the moratoriums have been mixed because in addition to the federal moratorium that we placed on uh, evictions, the states and the counties all were doing different kinds of things. And they came up with programs uh, to for rental moratoriums and they ended at different times. And so people have been a little bit confused. Some people have been able to get help because some of the cities and counties did take some money from the CARES bill and do some uh, assistance in some way, uh, but it has not been easy. And I know that people are anxious about it. I'm anxious too, but I'm gonna follow it all the way through to make sure uh, that the rental assistance is done and that the landlords get paid. My dream and my thought, because I think it makes good political sense, is that we give people monthly payments, $1,000, $2,000, whatever it is, every month until we feel like we're through this thing directly into the hands of the people rather than into corporations. And I imagine the politician of the party that's able to say, hey, we're giving you money every month. That would be extremely valuable politically. Is that even possible? No, but it has been talked about. Uh, as you know, we had no Republicans on this bill when it passed the House, no Republicans supporting the bill when it came out of the Senate. And so in addition to that, you know, the numbers are so close, you have to worry about whether or not you're going to lose Democrats. And so we have problems, you know, with a couple of our more conservative Democrats. And so that kind of progressive thought uh, no, has not been able to move very far. So that, I mean, the way the, the the structure of the Senate shapes what you guys think about in Congress about like, we can't send that up because that'll never get through. So we have, right, is that that, that shapes what you, how you think about legislation every day? Well, you know, what happens is you pass legislation out, out of the House and then you take it to the Senate and then you fight to try and keep it the way that you passed it. And the senators, even in my estimation, if they don't have any great ideas, they just got to put their fingerprints on it. And so what happens is they start to nitpick here and there. And you saw Manchin, uh, what he did with the unemployment benefits, he reduced it from 400 to $300, took hours and hours and hours on that debate, which didn't make good sense to me. There may be some other nicks in there also. But yes, in order to get a bill that we both agree on and before we can take it to the president's desk, we have to tolerate, you know, the concerns of the Senate. I feel like Republicans in the House and in the Senate are not acting in good faith. They are not acting uh, in terms of what's best for their constituents. They're saying, we don't want to do anything that would help this new president, which would then possibly lead to him getting reelected, which could possibly lead to Nancy Pelosi being, you know, uh, continuing to be that. Do you feel like they don't act in good faith? They just do things to try to hurt you Dems politically? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, they certainly cannot be trusted uh, to act in good faith, as you have described. And I just don't know how they get away with it with their constituents. Now, for this bill, uh, for the Rescue Act, uh, what we did have is so much public support, Republicans alike, you know, their constituents uh, alike who were supporting it, and they still didn't vote for it, and they still get away with it. And I just wonder all the time how they get away with not responding to the needs of their own constituents. Because I want to tell you something, this $1,400 in cash stimulus checks that we're going to give out, you got poor Republicans who need it more than poor Democrats, you know, and on and on 
and on. You know, that money is so important, whether you're talking about, you know, small businesses, you're talking about restaurants that are closing down, whether you're talking about many of the businesses that are, won't ever open up again. These guys literally choose to oppose us because it is political as you have identified. It is about whether or not they're gonna look successful. It is whether or not they're gonna get reelected. It's whether or not this president is going to get reelected. But they absolutely have made a mistake on this one uh, because like I said, the public does support it. Uh, number one, the president looks good uh, on being able to have delivered $1.9 trillion in a relatively short period of time. And uh, we're going right to the needs of the people and they're waiting, they're desperate. We've had these food lines where people, women and the children standing in line around blocks uh, to get you know, a bag of food uh, because children and families are hungry and the lines have been long. And so, yes, uh, we're going to we're going to have the appreciation certainly of Democrats, but we're going to have the appreciation of a lot of Republicans who are desperate, who are in need, uh, who are poor, who are living on the edge, who have lost their jobs, on and on and on with that. So they made a mistake on this one. Uh, they, they're going to get hurt, not us. I, I mean, I feel like when we talk about how can they survive making these sorts of moves. It's partly because they don't live in the reality that we live in, which includes facts and logic and history. They get news, quote unquote, from Fox, which paints the story in an entirely dishonest way. And they are misinformed. And, and I mean, that's part of why they get to succeed. It, 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 you know, that is so true. And I'm baffled about how misinformed they are. When they invaded the um, the Capitol and there was one woman who was caught in kind of a crush and they put a microphone before her to ask her, you know, why was she here? What was she doing? And she said, this is the re revolution. We've got to take back our government. This is a revolution. And she was serious about it. And, you know, this indoctrination that they're able to do is baffling. But you would be surprised how many people bite and how many people buy into these lies and these distortions. What was 1-6 like for you? What happened for, to you that day? Well, to tell you the truth, I had gone over to the gallery to witness the proceedings where the electoral votes were going to be uh, announced and, and uh, dealt with. And so... Once we had to divide, as you know, when they objected and the way the constitution goes, you get an objection and then you divide, the Senate goes back to the Senate, the house stays over here and you, you debate it, okay? So once the division took place and I sat there and began to watch our debate, well, I knew everything that our people were gonna say. Did. So I said, you know what? I think I'll go back to my office. I don't need to sit here and watch this. So I got up and walked back to my office from the inside, didn't see anything, anybody. By the time I got to my office and turned on the television, they had breached, you know, the barricades. They were, you know, breaking, you know, the glass. They were out in a way uh, that the chief of police told me never could happen. Uh, four days before the invasion, I had a one hour a telephone meeting with the chief of police. I asked him about uh, whether or not they were going to be able to get up on the plaza. He said, no, they would have barricades. I asked him uh, whether or not uh, they knew that the Proud Boys were in town and the Oath Keepers and how were they going to deal with that? And they said uh, that uh, they did not do uh, reservations for space for people to protest based on groups uh, that if an individual came in, it could be an individual from the Proud Boys, it could be an individual, you know, from the Oath Keepers, but they wouldn't know that, but they're going to keep a close eye. And I said, well, on the grassy part where there, maybe there's going to be a confrontation with protesters who will come and say uh, that they're opposite from them and what they're trying to do. He said, oh, we'll have police in there everywhere and we want allow that. I said, well, what are you going to do about guns? They do not allow guns. This is not a gun carry state. They don't allow guns in, in, in uh, D.C. He said, well, 
if any guns show up, we're going to we're going to deal with that right on the spot. Uh, I even went so far as to tell him, look, you should be concerned about the top of the buildings because Martin Luther King and Kennedy were, you know, targeted from up high. I said, and so you should you should have the top of the he said they can't get on top of our buildings. He said in order for them to get on top of the Capitol, they'd have to go into the Capitol. And then what did we see them scaling the wall? Scaling the wall. I asked him if they could block off uh, the intersection up at the Capitol. He said, no, they couldn't do that uh, because they had their First Amendment rights. And, uh, you know, they had to have passageways, you know, down the main thoroughfare on and on. And he made every excuse. But the Proud Boys had been in town days before the invasion took place. As a matter of fact, I think the Metropolitan Police had driven the head of the Proud Boys out of town. Uh, because they had caused some trouble with one of the churches, I believe, here. But they didn't seem to know any of this. Uh, or if they knew it, they were lying to me and telling me uh, that uh, we didn't have to worry. And so anyhow, uh, the police were either, you know, like I said, ignorant and incompetent, or they just plain uh, didn't want uh, to see us be able to uh, drive them away or drive them back. But what I discovered was they didn't even know the numbers that were 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 in town. And even though there had been a march, they were they were surprised when they took over, uh, you know, both sides of the Capitol. They were on both sides of the Capitol. But they were, didn't. Were you were you scared at any point? You know, I was worried. Here's what I, here's what I thought. I thought. Boy, if you show your face out there, they'll kill you. You know what I'm saying? You thought that about yourself? If yeah, I go oh, out there, I'll oh, be yeah. killed? I knew, I knew they would kill me. I, I just know that. Because, you know, just days before that, I was getting threats, of uh, more threats. We get threats a lot. And I've been able to get some indicted and some convicted. Uh, but I know that they're haters. Uh, and they had weapons. And I just know if I had walked up there in any, any place where they were, I would have been killed. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. And so I got into my office and they uh, I got a call at some point. Well, I called the chief of police and I just I mean, I just told him everything I thought about him and how he had uh, misled me or how he was incompetent and how this was to totally unacceptable. And I just slammed the phone up in his face. But then I got a call that said that the Capitol Police was guiding all of the members into a room, a big room, because they wanted to keep tabs on us and know where we were. And I told them, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not moving out of this office. I We locked all of our doors. We barricaded ourselves in. And I did not move. My staff did not move and come to, you know, we're so glad we didn't because they took them all to a big room in the Cannon building where we had Republicans with no mask and we had Democrats, even though the Republicans didn't tell us, but our Democrats who got sick, who got COVID, you know, and so I'm so glad I didn't go there. But evidently, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have a plan. So this business surrounding us up and taking us someplace was one of these last minute things uh, that they thought they should do in order to provide us with some kind of safety. But they didn't have a plan about what would happen, you know, if in fact uh, they got uh, literally uh, taken over uh, by a mob. And so it was um, it was unnerving watching them. And I was thinking about the hatred uh, that I saw, but I was thinking about uh, the way that they was breaking the glass in, in the window. And one guy, you know, just took it with his fist and then one wrapped a little something. And I mean, they were, they were angry. They were mad. They were crazy. And uh, I just thought that, yeah, certainly I would have been killed. And uh, when we, when I saw the noose hanging up there, it was really strange for me uh, because I just worked with Lee Daniels on the United States versus Billie Holiday, mm. where she was singing, you know, Strange Fruit based on the lynchings that she had seen. And then I also thought about, um, uh, let's see, I just read the, the book, The Devil You Know, uh, and that 
the lynchings that you talked about, the 5,000 or so lynchings before the Civil War. And I'm thinking and looking at that noose and looking at them. I said, well, they say that that's supposed to be for Pence, that they're going to hang him. But I wonder, I wonder, first of all, if they're going to hang a white man. And secondly, I wonder how many of us they would hang if we if we showed up and got in the way. And so it was that kind of uh, that kind of uh, of, uh, you know, just absolutely almost giving up on our government and giving up on our ability to deal with these domestic terrorists. You know, the idea that they could come in broad open daylight in the way that they did and, you know, basically uh, break into the Capitol and go into, uh, you know, the Senate floor and into Nancy Pelosi's office and all of that. It, I just, I just really had a feeling of, uh, you know, of uh, these people are out of control. They've got the president on their side. Uh, they've got the weapons, and we can't do anything with these people. Uh, they're going to cause real harm, and they're going to kill folks. That's what I really thought. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Some of your... We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Current colleagues helped the insurrectionists. Do you feel safe being in a body day to day with people who thought those are my people, not you and Nancy? Well, you know, it's, I don't think about really feeling safe. I know that uh, they had to stop them from bringing guns on the floor. And I know that when you talk to some of them, and particularly the one that we know belongs to QAnon, et cetera, I just get angry. And I just, you know what I really think? 
You come for me, I'm coming for you. You know what I really think? If I have to die, I just have to die uh, because I'm not going to walk around here in fear of you. You just don't don't come for me, okay? I mean, that's really what I was thinking. Um, what should happen to the people who 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 invaded the Capitol that day? Well, first of all, the FBI uh, supposedly is identifying them one by one, two by two. They're arresting some. Some are being held. Others are being released on their own recognizance. Uh, they're all supposed to be uh, facing indictments, et cetera. And so I think they should keep up with that uh, because here's what I believe. I believe that some of those people really did not think uh, that anything right. can happen to them, that they right. had the president on their side. And so they're looking to be taken care of. And some of them didn't even think they'd be arrested. Some of them think, well, if I get arrested, you know, they are going to bail me out. Uh, but, you know, we control the courts and the judges and the president does. And so we don't really have to worry. That's what that's what uh, I think. Now, what do I think about domestic terrorists? I think that unless this country gets a handle on, identify, and uh, come up with special ways of uh, convicting uh, domestic terrorists, uh, that we're in for a long haul with them getting bolder and bolder, particularly if uh, Trump you know, raises all of this money, intimidates those Republicans who are afraid to vote against him or say a word against him, uh, that I think they get stronger. And also, you know, there are so many tricks in all of this because the head of QAnon had a relationship with the FBI. And uh, they basically was, uh, the head of uh, the uh, QAnon was uh, basically uh, an informant who was given information on stuff like drug dealing and those kinds of things. And you have to be doing that in exchange for not bothering you because they knew he was, you know what I'm saying? So when I look around, I don't know who to trust. You know what I mean? I don't know who to trust. You know what I'm saying? And I tell my, my grandchildren and everybody every day, I said, we live in a society where many of the services that we need are provided by whites, but we don't know who they are. We don't know what they're thinking. What do you know if you're in an emergency and you go to the emergency room and there's a white doctor? What do you know about the teacher that's teaching your child? What do you know about, you know, you don't well, we know. Do, we, we do know that white supremacist groups have for years been telling their members, join the local police department so we can continue to maintain power that way. So when you or I... Are, and you doesn't happen to you because you have a bubble. But when I get pulled over by a cop or when I get eyeballed walking down the street in Brooklyn by a cop, I don't know that he's not a proud boy or an oath keeper or some sort of white supremacist. Oh, you, you're absolutely right. And it's not only the local police. It's your military. Uh, it is the police. And, you know, what's surprising is you have veterans who have been a part of, and uh, that's not all of them, but I do know that that's what's being identified. And even they have identified some Capitol Police here who are aligned with and identified with some of the white supremacist groups. So you don't know what you're confronting. You don't know to whom you're talking. You don't know who may do harm to you. You just don't know. What, let me go back to policy because you're the the chair of the Financial Services Committee, yes. incredibly important committee. Yes. I want to talk about what that work entails generally, but specifically, what's the chance that we can get $15 minimum wage for folks? That would make such a difference for millions of Americans. Well, uh, that issue is not in financial services. That's in ways and means, however, it doesn't matter. Whatever it was in, no, we don't have the votes for it. No, we don't have the votes for it. We don't it. have the votes in the Senate because you have them That's in the House. Right. We have it in the House, in the Democrats, with the Democrats. But you don't have the votes with Democrats in the Senate. You're absolutely right. And Why so wouldn't you bring it up and make Republicans show their hand, make them vote on it and see, like, we're all voting against $15 for you guys. Well, of course, we 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 we, we made them vote against it in, on the House side. But over on the Senate side, it's a whole different operation about 
how they do things and what gets brought up and when it gets brought up and all of that. And so we've just got to keep pushing and we've just got to keep trying to leverage and embarrass and use whatever tools we have, because even now, $15, that's outdated. I mean, you know, uh, you really need more than $15 now. We started on $15 several years ago. And so we just have to keep working. But I tell you what will make the difference. In the final analysis, the people on the street will make the difference. And to the degree uh, that, you know, people are willing to organize and make sacrifices and, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, show up in the numbers that we can show up, we can create some change. We already saw some weakening of racist attitudes about George Floyd after he was killed uh, by the local cop. And you saw people coming along, some of the, the corporations, uh, the kind of things that they uh, advocated for, kind of embarrassing, you know, trying to make it look like uh, that they truly understood, what have you. But we saw some attempts uh, by others uh, to say, oh my God, goodness, I didn't realize it was that bad, that was that terrible. And they hit the streets. You saw a kind of a mixture of uh, young and old, all different uh, ethnicities and uh, people. So you saw a little movement and people saying, you know, this is outrageous, uh, but, you know, it's not enough. It's not it seems, enough. It, it seems to me, so when you're running an important committee or, you know, just being an important congressperson, it seems to me like we, the public, see you giving a speech, doing an interview, but the real work is to be able to go to another member privately and say, how can I get you to vote for this with me? Can I give you something? Is that, you know, being persuasive and just, can I give you something that'll help you out? Is that where the real work is? And how do you do that? No, 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 no. it doesn't really work that way. I mean, you can make all the personal appeals you want. No, that does not work that way. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are some things you may be able to get some bipartisan support on. Not a lot. Uh, but when the, there's resistance, it is for a lot of reasons. And it's not just the issue itself. I want to tell you the basis of all of this is racism. The basis of this. In our society, it is that that maybe you don't hear, you don't see uh, but, you know, it comes out in different ways. As a matter of fact, when you watch the previous president in the way that he, you know, sent these um, uh, these dog whistles uh, to his uh, constituency. Uh, remember how he talked about our cities and talked about, you know, OK, he was sending a message that, you know, these black people don't care. They don't they, they don't they don't care about these communities. Look how they live. That's terrible. They're never going to do any better. We can't waste the taxpayers money on them. When he talked about our countries, you know, and other countries, uh, black countries, you know, he's sending dog whistling to them. When he talked about the athletes, a big message, look at all these big black athletes doing so well. They're rich. They live good. You know, you don't even have this. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they're doing better than you're doing. All of this, the basis of all of this stuff is racism. The basis of what separates Dems and Republicans is racism. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And this idea that Trump absolutely strengthened his voice on had to do with taking it back. Mm -hmm. Taking it back. Take back our country. You know what I mean? This is ours. They don't have any right uh, to be, you know, yeah. We know that the Republican Party is a, a completely for white people. Is the Democratic Party completely for black people or are we sort of mixed that like because we need to pull in white voters as well to survive? But here's the answer to that. You have some um, of our Democrats and, you know, a majority of them who have some basic philosophies about life and some basic philosophies about fairness and um they belong to the Democratic Party. 
We have some more conservatives who it is convenient for them to belong to the Democratic Party. They don't always believe what the Democrats are working on, but they vote with you uh, because it is in their best interest to do so for one or two or three reasons. And so when you talk about Democrats versus Republicans, you absolutely have more Democrats uh, that believe in uh, uh, fairness and uh, equality and that no matter what, uh, they should be at least about the business of seeing that children get educated, uh, that there's a decent health care system, uh, that, you know, there should be housing. Uh, on the opposite side of the aisle, they think it's not their fault and that the government spends too much money now and that those people need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. No, we shouldn't have public housing paying all this money out for poor people. No. So there is a difference there is a significant difference. So, uh, so how do we? How do you go into the the body, go into work, and get things done when you know there's this fault line, and it's rare that it's ever crossed? Well, you know, we just had uh, eight, uh, well, four years of not getting anything done. Right. Uh, you know, I tried to get this president impeached from the beginning, uh, right after the swearing in, because having watched him doing the primary and the way he talked about and treated human beings, you know, grabbing women by their private parts, mocking and mimicking disabled people, I, I just couldn't see why folks didn't understand uh, you know, who this character was and what he was all about. But But they did, and they liked it. Well, some did. And right. he had a hardcore, hardcore group that will follow him no matter what he says or what he does. These are your hardcore racists. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yes. And but we beat them. We beat them because we have more people and blacks understanding the power of the vote. And what Stacey Abrams was able to do mm. based on her experience, based on the fact that she'd run for office and no and knew that it had been st stolen from her. And she went and she didn't stop. And she kept working it until we got the numbers and we were able to put, uh, you know, two uh, Democrats into the Senate, which is just unheard of. Have black people or are black people being sufficiently rewarded for the support to Joe Biden and the Dems that they gave, which led to a Democratic controlled Senate or a 50-50 Senate and a Joe Biden presidency? Because it's really black folks in Atlanta and Philadelphia and Detroit and uh, Milwaukee who really showed up, you know, and made the difference. Are we getting our just due from having given Joe Biden the, the presidency? Well, here's what, and of course, we're still early in it. And of course, time will tell. However, when you take a look at some of the appointments that are being made, uh, some of them are very good. Some, I think, um, of them, maybe um, we would would have preferred to have a black in. But I think the last count was there were about 12 uh, appointments that we liked uh, an awful lot. And so he said he's got our back. He said we had his back and he's got our back. And so we are looking uh, not only for appointments, but public policy. And so in the um, $1.9 trillion uh, response that, you know, he's led, uh, that's going to get voted out of, uh, out the, out of the House uh, in agreement with what has happened in the Senate and sent to his desk. Uh, we like the fact that he didn't back down on the amount uh, because we even had Democrats uh, sometimes who thought that, uh, oh, it's too much money, never going to be able to get it. Uh, Republicans thought, you know, it was too much money, even though they had given tax breaks to the richest people in this country. One point nine trillion was money. So he stuck with that. Uh, and we think that he did good. He's doing good by, uh, you know, uh, you know, increasing the testing uh, for COVID-19, making sure that it got into the black communities even deeper and more. In this bill, we have substantial money uh, for the vaccines and making sure that they get into all these minority communities, even though, you know, a lot of black people are suspicious about the shots. And so, so far, he's doing OK. Uh, he's got a lot more to do, but he's doing OK. What can we do to get more black people to be comfortable taking the vaccine? Because as you just said, more of us are vulnerable and dying from 
COVID for yeah. social reasons. You know, yeah. we're more likely to be essential workers. We're more likely to uh, have pre-existing health conditions. We're more likely to be in multifamily homes. Um, and yet a large percentage of us, a good 30 to 35% of us are like, I'm not taking the vaccine at all. I remember Tuskegee. I remember medical racism. I'm not doing, and I'm like, you guys, like what? So what can we do to get more black people? Cause you've had your shots, right? Sure. And two. Yeah. Pfizer. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so um, here's what we have to do. Uh, first of all, we have to demonstrate that we are taking our shots and we're asking everybody else to take theirs. Uh, we've got to go out, uh, you know, to the ministers and the churches and the social clubs and organizations. And it's hard, uh, you know, living the way that we're living. But we've got to do everything that we can. I want to in Los Angeles. I was talking with one of the um, one of the health centers uh, that's uh, begging. You know, they've got all of this uh, all of this medicine uh, in this center. And black people are not showing up. As a matter of fact, uh, because black people are not showing up, whites are coming from other neighborhoods and they're <laughs> going into our neighborhoods, getting the shots uh, because it's available. It's available. Now, I really do believe that one of the things that will help out, two of the things that will help out, I think the ministers could be a lot more influential. Uh, you know, they have the most number of black people in, you know, in the religious efforts in the church on Sunday when the churches are open. But now if they're doing it virtually, however they're doing it, they're in touch. They've got a database, all of these churches. And I think that when the minister says, I'm getting mine and I want everybody at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, whatever, to be at so-and-so and so-and-so to get your, I think it could help a lot. The other thing that I think could help is athletes and and uh, entertainers. Mm. Entertainers. I think, uh, you know, uh, our hip hop movement has still has a lot of power. And I think, you know, you, know, you get uh, a Cardi B and, you know, you get P. Diddy and Jay-Z and you get everybody out there and, oh, God, don't bring Beyonce out there. I mean, <laughs> say, I'm, I'm on. I mean, <laughs> How many times have you been reelected? Um, I've been reelected ever since 1991. Many times, many times. So, you know, incumbents have a big advantage, but right. Like we, we, we love AOC. And the other part of that story is that she dethroned a, a, a long-term incumbent because she let the people know I'm here for you. How does someone like yourself continue to make sure that the district knows, hey, I'm here for you. I haven't forgotten about you. I'm not just in D.C. I'm here with you guys. How do you maintain uh, your finger on the pulse of what, because the people in your district have to continue to know that you you love them and you think about them. Yeah, before COVID, I fly home every weekend. I fly home every weekend. I know my churches in my district. I know every part of my district. I know all the different cities in the district. I know what their needs are. And uh, I, I know the, the churches in the district. I work with, I even work with the Chamber of Commerce in one of my most conservative areas of my district. I work with the, the schools in my district. I work with organized labor. Uh, I show up uh, and, you know, I attend uh, all kinds of community meetings and projects. I mean, I'm a very active, this is my life. This is what I do. And so the people know me very well. The last election that I had in November, uh, the Republicans and a group of haters decided to come after me and they funded my opposition to the tune of $10 million. And so he went out to try and buy up the community. He did food drives. He did uh, backpacks. He did all kinds of stuff. He lied, what have you. Uh, but I won handedly because the people know me and they trust me. What's your superpower? What is the thing that you do better than other folks that has led to the success you've had in life? Uh, I don't know if I have a superpower, but I am um, I am very steeped in a basic philosophy about life. I believe in fairness. Mm-hmm. I believe that everybody has value. And I believe that treat, people should be treated with respect. And I believe people should not be hungry 
uh, that poverty is uh, atrocious and that we should do everything that we can to help people have a basic decent quality of life. I don't like to see people taken advantage of uh, and uh, I have the courage of my convictions and I will say what I need to say. I will do what I need to do. What are some of the key? So we started talking about this before, but the keys to success as a congressperson, you, you talk about running up against racism, but you clearly know how to make the body, make the organization work for you when you needed to. How, what are the keys to anyone being successful as a congressperson? Well, you know, I think that what's most important is that you really care about the people that elect you and you show it. You respect them, you listen to them, you respond to them, uh, you have time for them. They have to trust you to the degree that people trust you, uh, they will support you. And I think those are the basic things that you need to have in order to be successful. And I think people who lie to their constituents, who are dishonest, who uh, you know don't really care, it usually catches up with them. It usually up one way or the other in some kind of a big old scandal or, you know, an arrest or, you know, uh, you know, you know, the ones who go out saying that they opposed to abortion and they have a girlfriend who they tried to get to abort a baby. You know what I'm saying? These are the ones that, uh, you know, <laughs> they get caught. <laughs> what would surprise people about the day to day life of a congressperson? Oh, you know what I think would surprise people? And I thought about this not too long ago. Uh, you know, I came from a huge family, 12 brothers and sisters. It was 13 of us. What and, number were you? Uh, number four. And, but we, we had to learn to do everything. And it was just natural for us. And my mother uh, was a very um, energetic woman who was extraordinarily independent, uh, no matter what. She had married a couple of times, uh, two sets of children. Uh, but we learned to do everything. And so I'm never really handicapped when I get in a situation where I need, I mean, I don't need to have a housekeeper. You know, I can do everything. I scrub floors. I can, you know, I do. Everybody said, what do you do about makeup? I put my own makeup on. What do you do about your hair? Well, I take care of myself. And uh, I don't mind washing dishes and cleaning the house and folding the clothes. I don't mind doing whatever I have to do. And whatever, what, whatever. I learned how to improvise and to deal with taking care of situations when you don't have, you know, what is thought to be needed to take care of situations. And so uh, that's what I think people would be surprised about me and my ability to shovel coal if I had to. I can do anything. I can do anything. Yeah. I think I think the biggest thing that black people need is relief from the war on drugs. Right. And for the police to not be so oppressive in our communities. And I think uh, an important step to that is marijuana legalization. What do you think about the potential in your lifetime, or at least your time on the Hill, of federal marijuana legalization so that we can stop attacking this underground market? Because the underground market will collapse when there is a significant uh, legal market. So what, what, how, what do you think about that? Well, we're getting there. And that's in my jurisdiction in financial services because of the need for safe banking. And I'm working with Perlmutter, who is one of the leaders out of Colorado, uh, who really, really work at working on, you know, safe banking. And I think that's the key uh, to getting uh, uh, marijuana off of a Schedule One list as a, you know, a dangerous drug kind of thing. That will happen. That is going to happen. Um, and so, um, well, you talk about safe banking. That has been one of the problems uh, that that. That legal marijuana operations have yes. not been able to have normalized banking That's operations, right. so they're carrying cash. It's very yeah. dangerous. So how do we how do we let them have normal banking operations? How do well, we get to that? We have a bill. Uh, we have a bill. We're working on it. And uh, that's what I referred to when I said safe banking, safe banking act. We're going to win on that. We're going to get it. We're going to get it so that they're able to have, uh, you know, regular banking uh, to keep them from being at risk of being robbed uh, and all that goes along with, you know, handling large sums of cash, et cetera. We're going to win on that. You see the votes for that in the Senate? Uh, yeah, I think we're going to win on, on safe banking. I do. You know why, why I think we're going to win on it? Because uh, 
it has become an economic concern now. You know, a lot of money uh, is being made and uh, a lot of money uh, can help stimulate the economy and on and on and on. So I think we're going to be able to do it. Is reparations under uh, financial services? Is that part of your purview? No, it's not. Absolutely. It's in uh, the Judiciary Committee. And, you know, John Conyers started out uh, with the study. uh, And of course, he's no longer with us. uh, But Sheila Jackson Lee has picked it up. And now it's in the studying stage still. uh, But it comes out of Judiciary Committee. And that's a difficult one. uh, But we have to keep going. We have to keep going. Dream legislation for you, if you could, if you could say like, you know, I'm, I'm going to wave my magic wand, I'm going to make this happen. Like what would be dream legislation for you? Well, uh, quality of life is uh, one of my greatest um, concerns. And just as you talk about whether or not there can be uh, money that is uh, basically given to our uh, constituents on a monthly basis. I wish everybody had an income, but whether it is private government or it is a government assisted uh, that they could count on having a decent quality of life where they would have food on the table, they could pay their rent, uh, they could, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, uh, time, uh, to to spend with their children, vacation time, basically a decent quality of life. If I had my brothers, I would make sure that we would have a guaranteed uh, income for everybody. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tenderfoot TV campside media and iHeart podcasts radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, that sounds amazing. So so is that your, what, what is your number one priority of the things that you are working on now or thinking about drafting? What is your number one priority for the next two to three years, legislatively? Uh, uh, there, there, there are a number of things, but number one, right now I'm dealing with COVID and having worked on rental assistance and stimulus money and all of that. And uh, because I'm there and because uh, Lydia, Nidia Velasquez is there, we were able to target money to what is known as MDIs and CDFIs. These are your minority banks. Uh, and these are your small organizations that lend money in the community. And they didn't have the liquidity to be able to do that. And so we were able to snatch money out of that First Cares Act, uh, even though they, you know, the large banks were giving it away you know, to the, their uh, premier clients and creating portals for them. We were able to put more money into it and get $60 billion and get it to them. So this is very important that I always continue to support small minority businesses uh, that, you know, the access to capital is what's going to make us, uh, uh, you know, able to have businesses where we can deal with this wealth gap uh, that uh, that we have. And, we you know, we may ne- never be able to get rid of it unless we are very consistent in the way that we, we uh, pay attention to it and we deal with it. So I work on that. 
uh, I created a subcommittee of my committee when I took it over of diversity and inclusion, because I want to open up opportunities in the private sector and in the government, and particularly in the financial services area for upward mobility opportunity uh, for uh, minorities, blacks and women, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's high on my agenda. If we can, you, years ago, we started out with something called affirmative action uh, that just got killed. Uh, and so now we're coming back and we're coming back with diversity and inclusion and we're getting corporations to say, well, you know, we're discovering uh, that it's good for the bottom line to the degree that we don't exclude. Uh, we probably uh, can do even better. So some are saying that some now are creating departments inside the banks and financial institutions that is a diversity and inclusion department. Others identifying people or individuals to lead up efforts inside the corporation, et cetera. And so my dream is that we could get rid of this discrimination in financial services and in business and so that people can realize their potential and earn good money. And that's so, so I, huge. Yeah. That's I, so I, huge. Because if we could if we can get loans to buy homes, to start yes. businesses at yes. similar rates, at, at equal proportions to white people, then we will have uh, we will have a, a more equal plane to be able to build wealth and to try to create companies that change the country. Um, that, that I mean, because that wealth gap is a very almost tangible aspect of it all we, right there's so much of systemic racism that's like so abstract how do we approach that but the wealth gap and the banking aspect in that and i was just listening to a brother talk about how insurance companies are quite often the backstop of racism that a given company said well we can't we're, we can't be racist but then the insurance company says well we can't insure that we cannot insure a home in that area and that that way racism is able to perpetuate that's where you see the most harm that has really created a deep systemic racist society uh, the withholding uh, the ability to get capital, uh, to get loans, uh, to be gouged and have to pay more for your interest rates, taking more from your salaries. Everywhere you look in poor communities, there's somebody ripping folks off, you know, for trying to get every penny from them that they can. Uh, and, 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 and basically really trying to take the money from the people who least need to be, you know, stolen from. Uh, but all, this waste, uh, this uh, wage gap that we're talking about, it is a combination of these things that has created the systemic racism uh, that keeps us from avoiding uh, being able, rather, to have wealth. Uh, what, 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 do you, what do you make of, of, you know, what we're talking about? It comes from a government program, 1950s, the FHA, uh, giving money, 95% of it to white people to create uh, to buy homes and create wealth, black people getting little to none of that money. That, those are the grandparents and great-grandparents of people who are around today. If your grandparents owned a home, uh, you're more likely to be wealthy than if they didn't. And we were blocked from all that money. And this is our government creating that. You're, you're absolutely right. A government has been just as guilty as uh, the private sector uh, with racism and exclusion, and to the degree that they were able to help with racism, they've done that in so many instances. Thank you so much to the Congresswoman for a great interview. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle, Brenda Cox, Kathy F. Keena Murphy, Earl Dorsey, and Theo Tokis. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests 
because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.